0: This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. everyone. So today we are going to start talking a little bit about hip pain. Um, And in this episode, we're going to focus on common hip diagnoses that we see. So we have previously recorded a couple episodes that we did in season one, where we talk about the hip um, osteoarthritis CPG and also the non-arthritic hip pain CPG. So, you know, there might be a little bit of repetition here from the non-arthritic hip CPG, but we just wanted to talk a little more specifically about common hip diagnoses. Um, So we're going to talk about the diagnosis, the most common pain location, and some common clinical characteristics that you'll see for each of these diagnoses. Um, And there there are so many hip diagnoses, so we're not going to cover every single one, um, but we feel like these ones are important and they're commonly seen. So um, that's why we chose the ones we did to talk about. And then in the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about examination and treatment of patients with hip pain. Um, so I'm also going to mention a few pediatric hip disorders in this episode, but, um, those of you who are Patreon members with with us, you'll have access to a bonus episode where we're going to talk a lot more about some common pediatric orthopedic diagnoses that we think are important to know. So, um, if you're a Patreon member, keep an eye out for that. Um, but today I'm just going to discuss a couple of them. So the first one I wanna dive into is leg calve per disease. So this is a pediatric hip disorder um, and it involves ischemic necrosis of the femoral head. And it occasionally follows episodes of transient synovitis. It's most commonly seen between the ages of four and 10 and it's more common in males than females. Uh, patients with this will present with groin anterior thigh and or anterior knee pain and will also present with a an antalgic gait. And the other pediatric hip diagnosis I want to talk about is slipped capital femoral epiphysis. Um, And this is a condition in which the femoral head epiphysis slides off the femoral neck. It's commonly seen between the ages of 11 and 15 in females and between 13 and 15 in males. Um, Patients with this will present with variable limitations into hip internal rotation and flexion as well as a non-capsular pattern and pain with weight-bearing. This diagnosis is also frequently associated with obesity. So, um, Amanda, I don't know if you have anything specific to add. I don't treat PEDS really at all, so um, I don't know if you have anything specific you want to talk about with those two diagnoses. The only thing I would say for those two diagnoses is I think they really need to be on your radar in terms of screening. You know, they're Mm -hmm. not really going to treat patients um, too often with that, I don't think, but you know, if they've only seen pediatrician or I get a lot of kids that seem to be seen in like express care for stuff like that or an urgent care type setup. So just have Mm -hmm. it on your screening radar, I'd say more than anything else. Yeah, for sure. And I think even, you know, I don't specifically treat peds, but I do often see sometimes some kids in my clinic that are, you know, between 14, 15 that, you know, they still fall into that age range. So I think it's with the slipped capital femoral epiphysis. So I think it's important to be aware of, Um, Alright, so the next one we're going to talk about are femoral neck fractures. Uh, So these can happen due to overuse or from a traumatic incident. Um, So when overuse or stress fractures, uh, patients will present with sudden hip pain with an increase in activity. They can experience pain referring to the anterior medial, medial thigh, knee, and groin. And there's two types of stress fractures that you'll see. So one is a fatigue stress fracture. And that occurs due to repetitive and abnormally high force. These are your people that are doing an activity over and over again. Um, That's a higher force activity. The other type is insufficiency fractures. And these occur in patients with compromised bone density, postmenopausal women, and patients who've undergone radiation treatment, corticosteroid treatment, or have rheumatoid arthritis. Um, So with traumatic femoral neck fractures. Um, You'll see these most commonly in adults 65 years and older. The mechanism of injury is a compression trauma, such as a collision or a fall. These can sometimes be fixed with pinning, but some patients may need a hemiarthroplasty. Of fall-related fractures, hip fractures cause the most deaths and lead to the most severe health problems and reduced quality of life. So I think we've all been you know, pretty aware of that, that hip fractures can really lead to a lot of additional issues in elderly populations. So um, it's something to be uh, mindful of as well. The next thing we're gonna talk about is a vascular necrosis. And this occurs when the blood supply to the femoral head is compromised for a prolonged period of time. Uh, This diagnosis is is a common complication following hip dislocations, fractures, and chronic synovitis. This does happen in male patients more often than female patients. And patients with avascular necrosis will present with the antalgic gait, a capsular pattern and complaints of sharp pain in intermittent and extreme ranges of motion. So this is something that you um, definitely want to screen patients for that are coming in with hip pain. Do you have anything you want to add to those two fractures or avascular necrosis, Amanda? No. Okay. Not right now. Pretty straightforward. So, the next thing we're gonna talk about is femoral acetabular impingement. And there are three different types of impingement. There's really, there's two, and then there's a, the mixed component of the two. So the first is a cam impingement. And that's where the patient has a non-spherical femoral head. And this occurs most commonly in young males. A pincer impingement is where the patient presents with increased acetabular coverage around the femoral head. So in these patients, the labrum gets pinched between the acetabulum and the anterior femoral head and neck. This occurs most commonly in middle-aged females. Then there's also the possibility of mixed impingement, which is a patient who would present with both a cam and pincer impingement. Uh, The next one we're going to talk about are acetabular labral tears. So a tear in the labrum of the acetabulum can be caused by trauma or degeneration, or it can also be idiopathic. And these occur most commonly in patients between the ages of 18 and 40. So there's a really large uh, range when it comes to these acetabular labral tears. 20% of groin pain in athletes can be due to acetabular tears. And there's two types of labral tears. So a type one tear is where the labrum is detached from the articular cartilage surface. And this tear runs perpendicular to the surface um, and can extend into the subchondral bone. A type two labral tear is when there's one or more tears within the labrum. Patients with a labral tear will present with pain at end ranges of motion, specifically flexion, adduction and internal rotation. They'll present with normal radiographs as well as pain with performing an active straight leg raise. Um, And this diagnosis can be confirmed with arthrography. The next diagnosis we're gonna talk about is a ruptured ligamentum teres. This can occur due to a traumatic injury. Um, It can also occur due to medications or other treatments that affect ligaments or due to micro instability in patients with diagnoses such as CAM lesions, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, or those who participate in gymnastics or martial arts. These patients will present with limited range of motion and pain into extension or combined flexion and internal rotation movements. The next thing we're going to talk about are snapping hip syndrome. And there's a few different types of snapping hip syndrome that we're going to get into here. So The first one is internal. Um, So with internal snapping hip syndrome, the iliopsoas snaps over the lesser trochanter and the patient experiences a snapping sensation in the groin. Uh, This is caused by stenosing synovitis of the iliopsoas. Um, And here I just want to know, I think it's important to, um, and really this is with all the different types of snapping hip, but it's really important to ask the patient exactly when they feel snapping or popping in their hip. I've often seen in my specific setting that patients will have um, popping in their kind of that anterior hip or in that um, internal, you know, kind of location, but it's when they're doing like core exercises, ab exercises, that sort of thing. And oftentimes what I see is they're getting that because they're trying to do exercises that are maybe a little harder um, for them and they don't really have the appropriate amount of abdominal stability to complete that exercise. So they're getting that kind of popping hip. Um, If you decrease the difficulty of an exercise, they're able to do it without the hip popping. So I think that's something to kind of screen and look for. It may not really be that stenosing synovitis of the iliopsoas. It might just be that they're, you know, picking exercises that are a little too challenging and they're getting that um, popping in their hip with it. The next type of um, snapping hip is external, and this is where the IT band or the glute max snaps over the greater trochanter. Then there's intraarticular snapping hip, which is due to loose bodies in the joint or labral tears. So with any of these types of snapping hip syndrome, patients may complain of snapping or popping with ambulation. You may feel IT band subluxation with palpation, and they will likely present with a positive Obers test or Thomas test. These patients generally respond well to conservative management. Anything you want to add with snapping hips or any of the other ones that we've touched on, Amanda? No, I like the point you made about, you, you know, there are sometimes the patient's exercise selection on their own can contribute to that. And that's where I just think a good subjective history can help yeah, you absolutely. Know, kind of weed some of that out. Right. I mean, if they're having it when they're walking, then obviously, you know, you know something else is going on. But if it's only when they're doing exercises that, you know, they're trying to do some hip flexion or hip extension, and it's requiring a lot of core stability, I just think it's something that we need to make sure we're looking at. Um, So the next thing we're gonna talk about is bursitis. And this is something I'm sure we all commonly have seen. Um, And there's a few different types of bursitis we're gonna touch on. So the first one is trochanteric bursitis. And this is a common cause of lateral hip pain that can radiate into the lateral thigh, groin, and the glutes. Um, And these patients will present with pain with palpation and active or resisted abduction of the hip. Another type of bursitis is iliopsoas or iliopectinial bursitis. These patients will present with anterior hip or groin pain that increases with hip extension, pain with end range passive hip flexion and adduction, and tenderness with palpation of the involved bursa. The next one is ischial bursitis, and this occurs in females more than males. It commonly occurs due to sitting in a firm chair and results from chronic compression. Uh, This can also be caused due to a direct trauma to that um, ischial region. And the last one is gluteal bursitis. This is located above and behind the greater trochanter It's most common in patients between 40 and 60 years old. And these patients experience pain um, that increases with walking and going upstairs and also pain with passive internal rotation and abduction, as well as resisted external rotation. So those are the common types of bursitis. And I think this is something that we, you know, depending on what type of population you're working with, see quite often. Amanda, this is something you see a lot. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Pretty common, so it's good to be able to um, rule that in or out. And the last thing I want to touch on, well, a couple things. First of all, is tendinopathy. So, hip pain due to tendinopathy is most commonly caused um, by tendinopathy in the following muscle tendons: so the gluteal uh, muscles, the rectus femoris, iliopsoas, and the hamstring. And I'm not going to get into specific testing for those things, but I think it's just good to be aware of that. Tendinopathy in those specific muscles can often cause pain in the hip region. Um, And the big diagnosis for the hip that many of us see that I haven't touched on is arthritis. Like I mentioned in the beginning, we did do an episode in season one on um, the osteoarthritis CPG, and that really goes into detail on these um, arthritic hip patients and how to diagnose, treat, manage them. Um, and so I'm not really going to get into that in this episode just cause I think it's so heavily covered there. Um, and it, but it is something I would definitely make sure you're very well versed on and, and truly understand the management of those patients with hip arthritis. Um, anything else you want to add, Amanda? I don't think so. I think that kind of gives a good overview of some of the hip diagnoses that I think are important to know besides OA. Yeah, absolutely. So, Um, you know, just making sure you have a good understanding of those, what types of things you're going to see in patients with these different diagnoses, how they're going to present. And like I mentioned, the next episode, we're going to get a little deeper into some different tests and measures for the hip, how to kind of rule some of these things in and out, screening for referral for these patients, um, and and management of them so as always if you have any questions please feel free to send us an email Um, we'd be happy to talk about any of these things further if you have any questions all right thank you very much thanks